0: Welcome to episode 52 of Comic Book Nation, the official podcast of ComicBook.com. I'm your host, Kofi Outlaw, and with me today is my co-host, Matthew Aguilar.
1: What's up, everybody?
0: And we're bringing him back, and for the first time, not for some wrestling talk, Mr. Connor Casey is joining us on the couch.
1: What's going on, guys? I feel so relaxed
2: in this Hawaiian shirt. Yeah, it's weird seeing him without a blazer.
0: Well, you just, okay, so we're just jumping into you wearing a Hawaiian shirt. So, Mr. Connor (laughs) Casey has traded his usual blazer for a Hawaiian shirt in honor of us talking Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood which we will be uh, doing a little breakdown and review of. But we got more than that going on because we got a lot to get through today in our deep dive section. We also have a review of Amazon's The Boys, which is currently become blowing up and becoming a trending topic on social media. People are kind of loving this show, so we are going to get into it because we've all seen it. And we are going to be talking about Marvel's new second part of Jonathan Hickman's X-Men reboot, Powers of X or Powers of Ten has been released, and we are going to break down this new issue as a kind of follow-up to our review of House of X last episode. And needless to say, Powers 10 is an even bigger mind screw job than we were expecting in House of X. So we'll be talking about that, too. All right, so we're going to get into things uh, and start with our newsflash because those were just our deep-dive reviews. We have also a lot of stuff to talk about in our newsflash section. So stay tuned because when we get back, we are going to talk about Disney's massive money intake this year, we are gonna talk about Avengers Endgame's controversial deleted scene, and the first look at that new Walking Dead show that's coming our way. So be sure to uh, tune in for all of that.
3: Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt.
0: all right jumping into this news flash disney's the lion king has officially become a billion dollar earner the nuts marking (laughs) the fourth movie that disney has earned a billion dollars plus on in 2019 and we are only on month seven of this 12 month year (sighs) so nearly half a year still to go And Disney already is banking a billion dollars. And if you're not keeping count, uh, the billion dollars comes from Aladdin, Avengers Endgame, Captain Marvel, and now The Lion King. Sorry, Dumbo. Um,
2: (laughs) And Far From Home will probably be in that group. Well, Far From Home
0: has... Already earned a billion, but it's not Disney. But it's not.
2: Yeah. Uh, yeah, I always forget yeah. that. Yeah. Uh,
0: We're talking. Remember the topics. We're talking yeah, about Disney let's here. forget it.
2: This is what happens when
0: you just roll in the office like a superstar just to re record your podcast for a day. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Don't Could've... even know what's going on. <laughs> One day away from the news cycle. <laughs> anyway, so yes, uh, Disney has made four films that have earned a billion dollars, and there's still more to go. We still have Star Wars coming out. Uh, at the end of the year, the rise of Skywalker. So there's another billion <laughs> yeah. right off the bat. I mean, you can already count that. And I don't even know like what Disney movies are coming out the holiday season this year. I'm not like well schooled, but uh, probably potential for at least one more. So we could see like Disney ending the year with about five or six billion. In, I mean, doll- billion plus films. Not, I mean, and and uh, Endgame already earned two billion plus. Yeah. So like, yeah, Disney could walk away with like. Six to seven billion in just movie earnings this year, which is crazy to think about. I guess that marketing strategy to get all these properties under their thing has been working. Smart? Out. Yeah. yeah. Somebody made a smart move. Uh, I mean, do you guys think? I mean, how long before Disney just owns all of us and is just running our
1: lives? Well, they're getting pretty close so far. I mean, yeah, I mean, this is not even Disney Plus time yet. The Fox acquisition is just going to give these guys a whole boatload of new properties, be like, hey, who wants a billion dollars from Deadpool 3? This, this isn't going to end anytime soon.
0: Wow. So I guess this is a whole uh, Monopoly thing we we're always worrying about, you know, or once we're worrying about, but I uh, guess we don't have to worry anymore.
2: <laughs> and I mean, a lot of them are good. Yeah, I mean, like, a lot I of mean are that's good the thing, right? Yeah. If they make good movies, like, okay, cool. <laughs> yeah, I know, but there's making
0: good movies, and there's making good movies that are so globally yeah. lucrative that they're earning now a billion dollars as a standard. Yeah. Like, uh, I guess I'm just dating myself, but I'm still old enough to remember, like, how that was even unheard of before, mm-hmm. like, Avengers came out. Like, Avatar was, like, a f- Titanic where, like, only James Cameron knew how to earn a billion dollars. Yeah. And now it's just, like, that's the standard. It's like, your movie didn't earn a billion? You you failed. Get out of here. Like, that's crazy. Yeah. So, yeah, man. All right. Well, Disney's owning all of us slowly but surely. That's the headline there. Moving right along, we're going to talk about Avengers Endgame is hitting a digital release. And so we're getting, I mean, right now producer Jim Viscardi is making us go through every word of the commentary track and <laughs> we're writing a bunch of articles. But there are a lot of interesting <laughs> things that we're learning about Endgame as we're getting to see this kind of uh, breakdown of the special features and things. And one of them that has kind of really kind of blown up and caused a lot of debate in this office was this deleted scene that they've included in the digital release. It's your favorite deleted scene. No, it's, No, it's not. It's very much not. Um, basically, this scene, if you haven't seen it online, go to comicbook.com. You can watch it in our Avengers Endgame. Yeah, you just left Connor hanging with a pound there. Like, good job, man.
2: What? I didn't even see it. I was you're fine. It.
0: I know. You're, I you're just really out of step today. What am I out of step?
2: I was poking you because I know you hate this scene. I, <laughs> know, I know. So that's anyway, why.
0: So the scene in question, if you haven't seen it, watch it on comicbook.com. But it involves the aftermath of Iron Man saving everybody and sacrificing his own life to use the Infinity Gauntlet to kind of uh, snap Thanos and his army out of existence. Tony Stark dies. And in this deleted scene, we see how the rest of the MCU heroes kind of... Honor him and pay tribute in the immediate, you know, moment after his death, and it's this long sequence. Well, not long, but it's this sequence of every single one of the heroes on the battlefield, all the major players from the Black Panther franchise to Doctor Strange and everything in between, all kind of solemnly kneeling down in honor of Iron Man because you know Pepper Potts and like Spider Man are all kneeling by Tony, and so the rest of them don't know what to do, so they all just start kneeling, and there's this very, you know, there's the very uh, dramatic mm-hmm. music score from the, from the film playing over this and everybody kneels in a big show of honor to I, Iron Man sacrifice. Um, yeah, I think, the thing, I think the scene is stupid, like full stop. I just think it's really stupid and, I, and I'm really happy they cut it. Uh, Charlie Ridgely was tweeting out that, you know, he, taking on the internet saying that he thinks it was, he, taking the unpopular opinion that this was a bad scene and he's glad they cut it. I agree with him because it's so cheesy Um, we'll ignore the fact that, of course, the the deleted scene isn't finished. So, like, you see Shuri still wearing her Nikes and stuff like that. Um, But that's not the point. It's not a point about how finished or not it is. It's a point of, it's just so over the top and kind of cheesy- and there are some problematic shots in it. Like, I was cracking up saying, like, in one big scene, like, it stops on Captain Marvel, and she doesn't know what to do. She's looking around, and everybody's, like, kneeling. She's just like, all right, F it, and kneels down, too. And I was saying to somebody in the office, like, I can't imagine what woke Twitter would have been like if that scene was in the theater, and they made Carol Danvers kneel down on one knee to one guy who she didn't even know, like, and only experience with had been him being an asshole. Yeah. Like, like, you know, like, what would that mean? oh, he's a godfather in the MCU. I must kneel to him like people would have been going spastic over that alone. So it was kind of like weird. It was like some dead poet society crap Oh, <laughs> Captain My Captain, but like it, it was Tell unnecessary. That's how you really feel, man. God. Unnecessary to me. I think the funeral scene and the panning shot of all the heroes just dressed up in the black suits watching that, you know, proof Tony Stark has a heart thing is so much more powerful and works so much better in the film. I don't think you needed the battle scene.
2: I mean, I agree. I mean, i I don't. Okay, I don't go as far as you. I, I don't have necessarily an issue with the scene. It was fine for what it is. I think the movie's better without it. I, I think it does go over the top, and and like the whole like knights of the round kneeling thing is a little much for me. And it was like okay, it's very, it's going for that you know saccharin feeling, and, and it works in it by itself. But as a whole, and and being in the scene, I agree. I mean, a lot of those people don't necessarily have the we the audience know why it's important, why the director is doing it. But some of those characters have none of that context. And so it's just like, why are you bowing? You don't know the this person. The funeral
0: scene gets the dynamics right with with doing so much less. Like yeah. Carol is like up on the porch. She's kind of standing away from everybody, which is where she should be. Yeah. She's just honoring this dude, but she doesn't really know this dude and yeah. the people. So she's not like having to do some over overly elaborate yeah. display of, you know, honor or remembrance, so yeah, I think it works a lot better. Connor, did you watch this thing?
1: Yeah, I did, but thankfully didn't have to write about it. I think that the they made the right choice. They, mm-hmm. they, yeah, it's the, a scene that should have been deleted. Right, the pacing of the scene calls for it to be intimate and closed in. You've got Spider-Man and uh, Gwent. Jeez, what's her name? Pepper. Pepper. Also, also right there, Rody, huddled the around Iron him. Man We don't need to see what the other two dozen people in yeah. the v- general vicinity are doing at that exact moment. Yeah, they've got other stuff. We're more focused on what's happening immediately in front of us. Yeah. everything else is, you know, like you said, the the funeral scene gets that across so much better than oh, Hawkeye is going to awkwardly take a knee and then everyone just <laughs> kind of follows suit. It, yeah. it just it just felt corny.
0: Yeah. Um, and that's the thing that I think is funny about it. Like, even if people say, "Oh, I didn't mind the scene," like even Matt, like you're like, "But it should have been deleted."
2: Like, oh, yeah, yeah it, yeah. it, it should. We have all
0: been agree. Yeah. Like, this shouldn't have been kept. All right. So that was good. I mean, put that scene up there with the uh, unfinished Hulk from scene from the re-release, and uh, yeah, Avengers Endgame's missing parts are are quite quite an experience of their own. But moving right along, we're gonna jump from this to the Walking Dead third series that is coming in spring 2020, dropped its first teaser. Um, It showed us just a bunch of kids, none of them particularly interesting, uh, but a bunch of concept art, which was kind of funny about what, and it just kind of does this whole kind of voiceover exposition dump that the world of The Walking Dead is much bigger than we think. There's been all kinds of different ways, societies, and worlds have developed in this world than what we've been seeing and we're going to explore this in this new series. And if you haven't heard about it, the premise of this new series is following a group of young people who were raised in the era of the zombie apocalypse. They don't know about the old world. They've been raised in the zombie apocalypse in apparently a stable, safe zone environment. Um, but then for whatever reasons that galvanize the series, they have to go out and start getting on the road and, and kind of realizing how much more screwed up the world is than what they've kind of been led to believe, even though they grew up knowing that zombies and the undead are a thing and how to deal with that and live with that. So it's gonna kind of explore that. So in the concept art, there is a lot of interesting stuff. You see like, there's like a room that's almost like booby trapped or something with a bunch of zombies that have been kind of hung up from the ceiling and like an entire just uh, network of zombies hanging from a ceiling. Um, atriums and gardens and weird elaborate displays using zombie bodies and stuff, and just a whole world and society that incorporates this reality of zombies into it, which seems like it could be the most interesting about thing about this series so far, which is, you know, the main series, Fear the Walking Dead and The Walking Dead are people, you know, trying to hold on to this old world stuff, but the idea of people kind of fully leaning in and embracing this and seeing what that how that would have progressed from the beginning is kind of interesting. I'm not sure about the kid angle.
1: Like,
2: mm-hmm. I, I mean, honestly, until you describe the uh, concept art with like, oh, hey, we're gonna like booby trap with zombies and like integrate them into our society, I could care less about the series. So, I mean, that's the most interesting part. Otherwise, it's just Walking Dead version three. It's just people on the road dealing, finding other groups. I mean, we've seen that time and time again. And I'm not gonna lie, the fact that the comic series ended and kind of put its own bow on how this all plays out has robbed some of the has robbed me of some of the like oh i want to explore all those places because like now like in my brain i know how it works out i know the show diverts and and does things but like in my brain i know the true ending so and i know how things are there I don't really care. I, I just want to finish the character story that you already got me invested in. That's why the Rick movie. And this the is only why I, I wanted to about.
0: bring this up because this is gonna be the Walking Dead's first test of its brand for real. Like what happens when you try to do this show and you don't have the comics backing you up and like the larger parts of the franchise are gone. The yeah. comic is gone, the series has none of the main characters that we started with. Rick's gone, Carl's gone, Michonne's on our way out, yeah. like all of the, uh, Maggie's somewhere that on <laughs> yeah. indefinite hiatus, like, it, it, all of the biggest things about this franchise are going, but they're still trying to run that gravy train and say, but it's the Walkie Dead, you love it as a brand, here's a whole new story in a whole new world, like, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, do we, though? Yeah. Do we love this that much? Like, do we?
2: Without those people. Yeah.
0: Though. Without the people, without the foundation of the comics, without any of this. Yeah. We're about to find out, spring 2020, um, if they can see Robert Kirkman. We've been talking about this. We talked about this series. We talked about the end of the main, of this new series. We've talked about the end of the main series. We talked about all this, and it boils for me. It boils down to Robert Kirkman's not the best storyteller. Like he's an okay storyteller, and he did an okay job telling the story of The Walking Dead. There's always been potential for somebody to come in and, and take this concept and do more interesting things with it. Uh, Fear the Walking Dead is a good concept about how that show is when it finally kind of broke away and was like, you know, we're going to do our own thing and mm-hmm. like started exploring new concepts and things that got more interesting. So this show, if they can do that, the showrunners and the writers and do that, like, yeah, then you can keep this Walking Dead thing going. You might even do something where the shows begin to, you know, the reverse. The shows begin to inspire more comic stuff and more interest in new comic stories. Um, Kirkman has even teased that he's not necessarily fully done with the world. There could be a Negan one shot. There could be other things in this world. So it, the potential is. But for me, this is going to be the test. Yeah. And this teaser at least pro- provided at least one or two interesting things to look at for now. But, yeah, they're going to have to do a lot to kind of. Uh, this is an uphill sell in my book.
1: Yeah, the thing about the, the zombies subgenre is you have to bring some sort of twist to it in order for it to be interesting. And you can't just rely on, oh, hey, it's in the Walking Dead universe, but nobody is actually connected to the main story, like you said. Um, your, your pitch does sound interesting. It's, it's kids growing up in a world of zombies as opposed to a group of people trying to survive in a world that has been hit by some sort of plague. Uh, it's a t- kind of twist we deal with with the Zombie Land uh, movies. I mean, it's it's guys carrying on with their lives, as opposed to you know a Dawn of the Dead remake where we're just fighting off random hordes and malls and buses and whatnot. Uh, you mentioned that it's kids. Are we talking like Stranger Things level age I think or like so?
0: Old? I, I don't know how they're doing it. I know I don't know if it's like a flashback and then like where they are in present day. Oh, okay. but it's about. A group of young people who grew up in this society and then have to go out on the road for the first time and are ill-prepared for life, the actual harshness of this world outside and the reality of it.
1: That could work, but at the same time between the comic ending, people kind of hoping for the shows to start wrapping things up and the movies that we've got coming People might just look at this and go, like, guys, we're kind of sick of this. That's we, what i like, And that's what I think Move on. to be the real
0: else. testament to this. I, I'm so interested to see what these premiere numbers are going to be. Yeah. So, all right, spring 2020, more Walking Dead. Not God, because you asked
2: for it, just because. so far away, too. Yeah. For,
0: like. Yeah, a lot could happen. Yeah, right? It's, you know. oh, geez. Okay. Oh, uh, footsie going on here. I don't want to mess up your Captain Marvel kicks. all right
2: so leave it to me to make it
0: work yeah after that awkward Uh, pause stay tuned because when we come (laughs) back we are going to start our deep dive into amazon's Uh, the boys quentin tarantino's once upon a time in hollywood and marvel's powers of 10 debut so be sure to listen to that
3: iXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get iXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off iXL membership when they sign up today at iXL.com audio. Visit iXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price.
0: All right. So now, unless I'm missing something, you didn't see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Nope. No, you went to see the Lion King.
2: Yeah, I contributed. I contributed to the billion to the billion. (laughs) Shame on you. You uh, And also,
0: that's all good. Uh, Me and Connor Casey both saw our Tarantino fans, and uh, we went to see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I think Connor saw it twice. Just once. Once? Oh, Charlie (laughs) saw it twice. That's right. And this is the inspiration for your Hawaiian shirt. All right, so. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, you can read my full review on comicbook.com. I gave it four out of five stars. Uh, I would have given it four and a half, but we don't do that kind of thing here uh, because I don't know why.
1: We're too good for haves. Yeah, we're too
0: good for haves, if that's a thing. Um, I basically thought that the first time I watched this, I thought it was kind of slow moving and kind of meandering, and I was kind of thinking I was going to be disappointed with it when I left the theater, but then it kind of lived in my head, and it started to grow in, you know, as a sign of good cinema. We're so used to this crack cinema we watch where it's supposed to be like, I get a high right now and then like 10 minutes after I forget about everything. This was kind of the opposite. This is a classic movie. Like I started to think about it more and I started to like it more. And then I actually sat down and I think this is a debate that's going on because I've been seeing it on Twitter. Because this is based on real history, it's like a real weekend of history in 1969 Hollywood that happened. And it mixes this kind of com- comical farce absurd story about these two fictional characters played by Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt with real life events of stuff that, I I mean, if you want to go do the research, I suggest you do um, because it made the film so much better when I got home and read more and more of the fine details that Quentin Tarantino was kind of alluding to in this movie and like what happened and what the state of things was at this weekend in 1969 and who was involved and all of that. It's very interesting, and it really reframes how the film plays. If you don't know a lot of this stuff, if you don't, if you go in the film and you don't know the name Sharon Tate, Margot Robbie's character, like it's gonna be confusing to you and yeah, really weird.
1: The best thing you can do, and I did this, was. On my way to the movie, I plugged in YouTube and looked up the murder of Sharon Tate and just watched a quick 15-minute blurb on the Manson family and what happened that night. So, And those minute details pop up in this movie, and spoilers, they don't exactly play out the way that it does in real life, but there are, there are little things, little references, even little lines that someone will say that make you go, oh, so this really is a divergent of history that we're going off right here. It's there is so much to like about this movie, and I think the reason it's sticking with people after the fact is that it, it really is a day in the life kind of story, and there are so many details. The restaurants, the streets, the shops, the what, what, how hot it was outside. All these tiny little details get brought in to where you just sit in this world for a good two hours and you just soak in it and you drink it in and then the last 20 minutes is is it explains why it's called once upon a time in Hollywood and not some catchy, you know, short title about like 1969 Los Angeles. No, it's it becomes the almost a fairy tale that I think Tarantino was trying to get across in that he has such adoration for this era of filmmaking and the murder of Sharon Tate is seen by many as kind of the loss of innocence for that era on top of, and it, it's mentioned, you know, if you listen closely to what's going on the radio, especially, you you see that there is an underlying level of chaos kind of coming behind Yes, yeah. The studio yeah. system was collapsing in yeah. 69.
0: It was 69, the end of the 60s.
1: Vietnam is happening.
0: Vietnam in what was going to be a very turbulent 70s. And, like, I mean, and it's a parallel to now because... The 70s are a lot of ways parallel to like where we are now. People thought and, you know, people thought all kinds of things that, you know, Satan was taking over the world and these satanic cults were popping up and then, like the Manson family. And yeah, the loss of innocence and it, that changed the murder of Sharon Tate changed Hollywood.
1: And I think the and, reason I think the reason we get the ending that we do is because it was Tarantino's way of going. I absolutely despise what happened here and I'm going to take a movie and play things out in the way that I wish things had happened. Yeah. And because because that's what film can be. It exactly. Can, it can be like, the world that you wish was true, as opposed yeah. to the real
0: one. And that's a lot of the point of the movie is, yeah, this is the magic of... I mean, it looks at the magic and the dirty reality of movies com- and combines those two things, or juxtaposes them, but at the end is very much, yeah, movies can be better than reality was. Like, you can get a, a, a more... Fairy tale ending to things and how ugly reality is when it plays out. Um, and there's this whole kind of question and, and motif in the film about, you know, what's fake and what's reality and, like, you know, what's the power of each of those things. And yeah, and especially just even in, like, Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt's characters who have this great juxtaposition where you know, Brad Pitt's character describes himself at the beginning of the movie, like, who who are you? He's a stuntman. He's like, what's your job? And he's like, do you just care? You hold his load. And they play it for, like, a sex joke. But he says, no, that's about right. And down to the, like, last scenes of the movie, that's exactly what it is. Brad Pitt's character is, like, this highly talented, you know, strong, kind of serene, zen-minded guy. But he just plays the shadow to this kind of bumbling, insecure actor whose entire riches and power and fame come from the fact that he pretends to be a tough guy on TV while Brad Pitt's like really a tough guy and, and, and gets jack crap for it.
1: Right. Um, and you would think at first glance it's a parasitic relationship that, oh, he's just, you know, DiCaprio's just keeping Pitt around because, hey, he needs some muscle. He needs a guy to take the bumps for him when he doesn't want to. But by the end, you go, oh, it's it really is a friendship. Yeah. It's They rely on each other based on their strengths, whether it's confidence on one end or physical means on the other
0: yeah and it's about yeah and it's about just kind of highlighting also the unsung heroes of hollywood that there are these people these like light cliff booth these stunt guys who who live out who don't get all the glitz and glamour of it he lives in a like a beaten up car and a trailer um but he makes the movie magic work like you know he's a vital component in all this um yeah and so this movie does grow on you it is good when it kind of you take the history into account, but it's also very hilarious. Oh, God. Uh, like, very hilarious, and in an unexpected way. There are things where Tarantino plays this, like, I think Charlie said very Coen brothers, and I would agree, because Carantino is usually, like, very over-the-top with his humor and, like, slapstick or, like, very witty and gross dialogue or something like that. This does a lot of ironic humor, where you think you're watching an intense scene of somebody doing an intense uh, scene of acting, and then they break and its, like, line, it all becomes very absurd and farcical, and it's very funny. Um, and there are a lot of unexpected laughs. The, I think the scene of DiCaprio they showed during the trailers when he's messed up a scene and he's freaking out in his yeah. trailer alone is like award award worthy. That thing it's so hilarious and just really represents like what life, the ugly side of life as an actor and trying to do that and and how how messy it is before we get it up on screen into these magical moments. And but so that, question, that's no.
1: well, sorry that scene especially. Shows just how layered that character is for DiCaprio for me, just because he goes from here is one of the most talented actors in the world today playing an actor who's not terrible, but not particularly great and is kind of hampered by his own demons. And on top of that, he has to go through screwing up lines, but also being told after a really well played out scene that that was amazing. You did so well. And he's just sitting there and he's just tearing up because he's like, I still got it. There, yeah. there is some merit still left in me, and it's like that's a wonder. That's such a hopeful moment after that you, a
0: little tiny girl tells you you're the best, and like that's the most affirming thing that happens to him in the movie up to, to that point. And,
1: and this is from the same guy that just made Hateful Eight, where everybody just cusses at each other for an hour and a half, and then violently brutalizes
2: each other. But here's so here's the thing, and this this movie sounds boring as hell to me, so I'm glad I didn't see. It. <laughs> But the uh, thing is, I also uh, represent a lot of mainstream uh, America. And Tarantino movies tend to play very well to a very specific type of film goer and audience. So if is this a movie, though, that like, because you you pulled up a lot of things that like, well, you should know this going in. And it really feels like if you're a Tarantino fan, you'll find things Not necessarily that, like, you have to kind of fight to like, like, because you guys described this movie at the beginning, like... I didn't I didn't really know about it. And it's like you have to think about it afterwards and like f- almost find the enjoyment out of it. I don't know. It's like hearing it described by you two doesn't necessarily mean you go to this movie and you'll like this movie coming out of it. It feels like you have to search for that or have like will this play well to a mainstream audience? Well, it,
0: I mean, I mean, now you're going down a slippery slope. Because I was on social media kind of looking at the reaction to this movie, and one guy like came in, he was so angry, and he's like, I went to see this, and it doesn't make any sense. Oh no, slash film or somebody did. A podcast looking at somebody who went to see the film who who knew nothing about this. Mm-hmm. And and the questions are pretty absurd. It's like, I didn't know there was like a man's family. What is that? Who was Sharon Tate? There were murders, like what? And it's like, okay, but that's just a lack of cultural knowledge of history, which is a problem in and of itself. Yeah. Uh the fact that we don't know our own history going back to like 1960s to Very 70s true. Yeah. is a problem. And this kind of highlights things and brings Sharon Tate alive, and other people too. I mean, there's other people's movie, Bruce Lee's getting a revival, Steve McQueen is in this. Like there's mentions of these people that I don't think it's a bad thing to force people in this day and age to sometimes go out and read something else and do some research. And that's like great literature. Like great Mm -hmm. literature, you know, when we talk about like beach reading versus great literature, beach reading's easy. You go on a beach, you you can read it, you read this book, you get some visceral enjoyment out of it. It's all clear, you don't have to think about it you page turn, you get done, you toss that book, you know, you throw it to somebody else. Great literature, like, yeah, it's a struggle, you have to kind of go through it, you don't understand everything, you have to stop, look up things, figure out things, kind of get concepts explained to you, Mm -hmm. keep reading, but it's very rich and rewarding in the long run, as you gain more knowledge and insight about this thing, you feel better, and and it opens up for you, and I think Tarantino is very much a cinephile's filmmaker, Mm -hmm. Um, and that's And he's not shy about that. He's a guy who really loves movies and makes movies that have so many references and built into them. This one is the difference is just there's some history in this one. Yeah, that
2: you actually. Well, I guess that's the biggest thing is when it was first described. I that was the thing that hooked me was that it was based on those real events and the Manson murders and, and Tate. And then Tarantino made it a point to say, like, this wasn't a movie about that in numerous interviews.
1: Yeah, and and, is.
2: And saying And that's what bored me because I'm like, well, I'd rather go watch a documentary about that because that's the most interesting. I don't care about these two people. <laughs> I care about see, what really happened.
1: And so that's why more
2: and more I was like, okay, I don't really, this, not, this movie's maybe not for me.
1: See, the thing is you can go into this movie knowing nothing about 1960s Hollywood and come out just understanding what that vibe was like. you don't even have to know who Steve McQueen was or no. even what the playboy mansion looked like back then, but it's all in there and uh, you can just take it to the surface level and go, this is a really well told story about three. Cause we didn't bring up Sharon Tate, but she is featured pretty heavily in this. It's about three different types of actors in that era. And if you know nothing else, you'll still get enough out of that. If you know the slightest bit about the Manson family, you appreciate even more. And then you can just keep digging after layer after layer to find out, hey, all of the girls at the ranch are the daughters of famous actors. And Maya Hawks in this for two seconds. She's having like a Keanu Reeves level summer right now, just yeah. between this and Stranger Things. like. The more you dig, the more you will appreciate. Okay. But you can really find a lot of enjoyment just from watching it. Now, Kofi, let me ask you this. I, got, I walked out of there and I got the impression that this is going to be known as the Tarantino movie for people who don't like Tarantino movies. Because if to me, it feels the least like one of his up until the last 10 minutes.
0: Yeah. And it very much is that. I mean, it's not at all like your typical Tarantino movie, which was kind of what threw me in the beginning because I like traditional Tarantino movies. So this kind of threw me with its different kind of easygoing kind of not meandering, but kind of like longer free flowing takes of things, um, less talking, more just kind of scenery and kind of, you know, nonverbal communication. There's entire scenes of Brad Pitt and this girl keeps meeting that they have entire interactions that are nonverbal and stuff like that. And there's a lot of weird stuff like that. Scenes that go on a lot longer than a Quentin Tarantino scene typically does in sequences. And yeah, that threw me, but, uh. I think it appeals to people like that and appeals to people who were alive. Like, my parents went to see this, and they loved it. And that's not, never something I've heard them say about a Quentin Tarantino movie. Um, not that they dislike it, but, like, they loved this, and my mom loved it because she's been a movie fan. She was born in the 1940s. She grew up in her 20s in the 1960s. And, you know, for her, this really captured that era and brought it back to life and really kind of – he did a great job of kind of bringing all that stuff back for her. And she appreciated the the alternate ending because the real events were so traumatic and sad for not just Hollywood, but the nation. The idea that in somewhere like the golden hills of Hollywood, that some evil could randomly come and slaughter a house full of people, including an eight month pregnant actress who was on the cusp of major fame and married to the world's you know, most famous director, Roman Polanski, at that time, that screwed up the nation's psyche in a big way. Like, this was unheard of, yeah. of something happening. And so my mom appreciated, like, the difference because she didn't want to live that bad stuff over again. Yeah. And it, it made her feel good to relive in this world and think and have this fantasy of, you know, it all ending better. And, you know, the last shot of Sharon Tate, pray very visibly pregnant, hugging, you know, Leo DiCaprio's character. Because, funny enough, uh, like... I mean, we can talk spoilers. I mean, we're going to just talk spoilers here. The end of the movie is basically the Manson family comes to kill Sharon Tate because Charles Manson sent them to the house. She was living in a house that used to belong to somebody uh, he knew, and so he wanted to kill who was ever in there. So they, get, they went up the street and they killed everybody, but in this one they have to stop at DiCaprio's Roman Polanski's neighbor, and there's a whole point about how times are changing and how this kind of European director is now famous and the Western guy isn't famous anymore, and so he's trying to get in Polanski's house the whole time. To, as a signal that he's still relevant and can mm-hmm. do this. And so these mansion people come to the house. They run across Brad Pitt's character, who's tripping on acid. He brutally, like, just murders these people with his dog uh, when they try to kill him um, because it's set up that he's a fighter who's, you know, on par with Bruce Lee, mm-hmm. who can throw down with Bruce Lee. So this guy, like, just stomp, literally stomps one guy's head in. And like one girl goes flaming, he lights her. Or,
1: DiCaprio he, lights yeah. her on fire he, the old she flame. blinded by
0: has. the dog and she goes falling into the pool near DiCaprio and all he does is run and get his flamethrower and then roast her in the <laughs> pool. And he's just out there and the cops come and take them all away, so they prevent the Manson murders. Mm-hmm. And so then like at the end, Emil Hirsch plays uh, – I forget who he's playing uh, – Sharon Tate's like ex-boyfriend who was always still in love with her and followed her around everywhere – And he lets DiCaprio in. They have this whole conversation through the gate, and eventually he gets invited up to the house, and the last shot is him walking into the house, getting hugged by Sharon Tate, who, like, welcomes him and says, come in, like, hang out. And he's feeling, like, ecstatic because he's still got it, and he's still relevant, and, like, that's the end. So my mom really appreciated that. She liked that better than like a grisly ending where we see pregnant Sharon Tate get murdered. Yeah. Um, and like yeah. And that's very much like you said at the beginning. It's the fantasy. It's the real world, but then movies' ability to take to recreate a world that's lost, and then even improve upon it with some fantasy and and
1: create that. And so it, it's it's wearing a warm blanket of nostalgia for two hours, and then washing it down with a nice cold dose of revenge porn. Yeah. So There's plenty of it.
0: I mean, I know it will be one of Tarantino's most debated films since, uh, what was it? the one with Kurt Russell and Grindhouse?
1: Um, oh, yeah, uh, Death uh, Proof. Death Proof, yeah. Since
0: Death Proof, it's probably going to be his most debated movie um, in a lot of ways. But I say go check it out. I, I don't mind if you check it out on home video. I, I probably won't go to the theater to see it again, but I will be rewatching it several times when it comes out. Interesting.
1: I'm going to give that 35 millimeter uh, screening a look.
0: All right, Makes so fun. that's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. You can read my full review on comicbook.com. Let's jump to Amazon's The Boys, the most diabolical show to be coming out this year so far. Um, it's based on a Garth Ennis book, I believe, is mm-hmm. it? Yeah. And uh, it was done by preacher creators uh, Seth Rogen and uh, Evan Goldberg, along with Supernatural creator Eric Kripke. And, yeah, The Boys has been a surprisingly great hit for amazon prime Uh, probably my favorite prime video series so far i'm trying to think yeah easily you watch good omens uh no i have started trying to watch good omens i haven't gotten through it yet but i think i'm gonna like this more
2: i mean i like this one more yeah yeah (laughs)
0: Uh, the boys is really great if you don't know what it's about it's about a world where kind of the justice league exists uh kind of amalgamation of justice league and marvel (laughs) heroes and they're called the seven and it's a very cynical look at the world of superheroes. It, it, it's if the Justice League exists, how would they be, as imagined by some cynical Garth Ennis imaginings? And in his imagining, um, Garth Ennis, of course, preacher creator, did Punisher, Welcome Back, Frank, and like a bunch of other influential stuff. So in his imagining, you know, if superheroes really exist, they'd be owned by a corporation, marketed to the world, and be con- be controlled like any major mm-hmm. celebrity is. Mm-hmm. And so this series takes like starts out with a young guy named Huey, whose girlfriend is. Inadvertently vaporized <laughs> oh gosh, by man. the Flash character as he's running A-train, along, yep. A Train, yeah, A Train, and it it screws him up so badly that he gets approached by this guy named Billy Butcher, who's played by Carl Urban, and what it might be Carl Urban's best right? role yet. Yes, oh yeah. my god, After years of great, just like extra, <laughs> stro- like character acting and comic book stuff. Like this is his best role yet because it just lets him be full Carl Urban in the best way. He's a bastard,
1: in this yeah. Oh, he's so, so good, he's yeah, like, so no good. Funny bastard uh. of
0: a guy. And Billy Butcher approaches Huey and recruits him into the boys, which is this group of disgruntled humans who have been banded together with a secret, under the secret kind of black ops thing to take down the supers that are kind of in the seven who are running the world. And Billy Billy Butcher has this mad on for for the Superman of this world whose name is Homelander, uh, and for very personal reasons as you go through the series that you find out. And so he recruits this young, nerdy kid to kind of help him in his and his cohorts, and through some Forrest Gump-like stumbles, they manage to uh, really put a dent in the supers. I'll say it that way. Um, and then it just sets off a chain event of now they're kind of trying to take down the supers, while the supers are trying to figure out who they are. And they got to get to them before they can, you know, the supers can get to them. And it's yeah. a very funny kind of cat and mouse game. And season one, beautifully shot. First man, of all. gorgeous, like, show. gorgeous show. Great effects for the a superhero suits? TV show. Yeah, the suit. The actors and the cast are all so good. Um, the guy who plays Homelander. Yeah, I
2: was going to say, like, he is like my in, like my MVP. He's the guy uh, from Banshee. Yeah, right? he's
0: the guy yeah. from Banshee. And in Banshee, he's so awesome, like a hero. And in like this, he's still, like, the worst person But he's ever. so
2: good. It's yeah. one of those things like you hate him. Anthony Starr. Yeah, and his you name. just love him. Yeah, like, no, All Hom- at the same the time. The
0: Homelander character makes this show in a lot of ways because, yeah, he's Funny and kind of sardonic, and but also freaky as hell every time he's on screen because you you literally don't know what this guy's doing gonna do. I mean, he gets pissed off and he just lay. I mean, he heat visions people left and right in some very gruesome ways. Yeah. Like whenever if you just talk to him wrong, or he'll punch his hand through your heart, yeah. Or like <laughs> you know he's he's a very deranged Superman. Um, if Superman wasn't, like, all shucks, wholesome guy and yeah. had this ultimate power and a weird kind of, like, MAGA streak to him, like, what would he be? Uh, I mean, that's the whole Homelander kind of – I mm-hmm. mean, Homelander is a, is a name that invokes kind of fascist yeah. you know, associations and, like, Nazi Third Reich stuff. Um, but he's not that clear cut, and he's a very complicated character. And that's what I like about the series is it's is it's, it's absurd on one sense, but it's also pretty deep in another sense. Because it deals with like people and trauma and fame and celebrity mm-hmm. and uses superheroes as a metaphor for all this, but is really reflective of the real world. Yeah. Um, almost in a weird kind of parallel to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Like, who are celebrities? What are they really like? Like, beyond the veil of glitz and glamour. And this kind of says, like, yeah, if you had all this power and celebrity, you'd be screwed up. Yeah. And every single one of the members of this seven are screwed up. Um, and it's just great. Like, I just. I mean, I try not to binge watch or don't even feel that compelled to binge watch things anymore. Um, like, I took a week for Stranger Things 3. But this, yeah. I was like, nah, I got to see next episode, next episode,
2: next I'm literally episode. finishing the series when I get home. Yeah. Like, that's like, I'm on the last and one. because now
0: I'm having binge, post-binge pressure. Uh, yes.
1: want season two. Especially with, and I won't spoil it, but the way the first season oh. ends. I did the that. The last Michael, scene yeah. is a gut punch and a half. And if you like the comic, it's not how that ended. So, um, yeah, it's yeah. very curious to see. Yeah, season two needs to be here now. And it's already in
0: production, so yeah. it's thank, coming.
1: Thank God. Because if but, if, yeah. if you had binge this only to find out, yeah, Amazon didn't get yeah. enough attention with this one. Be like, you it's been, bastards. It's been doing really
2: well numbers-wise. They've got a lot of critical praise yeah, over it. And yeah, the thing
0: about streaming shows is the buzz is there. Mm-hmm. This is getting, like, a bigger buzz by the day. Like, people are really tuning in, liking it. And, and blowing it up on social media. And so
2: And I think it handles the source material really well because like the comic never grabbed me. I always loved the premise, but it, it goes overboard a lot of times with just the gore and the 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 meta stuff like the the fact that it's like trying to have social commentary is so ham-fisted sometimes in the comic it's so overboard and you're like okay I get it (laughs) and this one finds nuanced more nuanced ways with those character interactions because like Huey alone like Huey's reactions are amazing throughout this whole thing and very much ground the stuff that and that's what I also like about the group itself like uh and I'm forgetting his name now uh, but there's, I mean, there's four guys, really, in the boys, and then Kimiko. Yeah, and Mother's like,
0: Milk and Frenchie are yeah. two. Yeah,
2: and they know, are, like, guys. become really interesting characters yeah, throughout. Yeah, Frenchie's
0: a really good character Oh my in god,
2: the like,
1: yeah. yeah. Like, I thought he was gonna be, like, a one-punch one, one punch line. Yeah, exactly. Kind of yeah. Kind of character.
0: And he's like, so nut, oh,
2: and it, it's so yeah. refreshing. And the things
0: with him and Kimiko, uh, Kimiko is a, is a girl that kind of from the super world, there's two girls from the super world that get involved in the orbit of these guys. One is starger or uh, Starlight. Starlight who she's is a, great too, yeah. She's this kind of all shucks, naive uh, girl who gets drafted, is like one of the next people drafted into the Seven uh, and because one of them retires and so she takes a spot and then she's very naive and not at all prepared for what the reality of, she's idolized these superheroes and when she finally becomes one, she's not prepared for how dark it gets. And very quickly you know, kind and of. very quickly. And that's how this show the show is. Yeah. I saw it coming because I just have like, by now for what we do, I have a sixth sense for how a scene's going to turn. Mm-hmm. And there was just a scene uh, early on when she goes to the base and first meets the seven that I was just like, this is about to t- get really, t- really yeah, that weird. That took a turn. <laughs> this is about yep. to get really weird. And even then I was not prepared for how weird it got. And like, I was just like, oh, man. And, like, yeah, you you start the boys, and you see the, the, the warnings on the first episode. Oh, my episode. God, yeah, yeah. for yeah. real. There's an entire page. You know those, like, M.A. for, you know, and then a list of reasons why yeah. something's M.A.? This is the longest list of things that are M.A. I have ever seen in a show.
1: I've never seen one for... Rated M.A. for Rape, and I'm just like, oh, my God. Yeah, they warn you right off the bat. They (laughs) warn you
0: right off the bat, and they are not kidding. My my Um, only
1: hang-up with the show is I hope the budget is bigger for season two, because especially towards the end, it feels like we ran out of money because everyone is suddenly just sitting in rooms and kind of waiting for stuff to happen, and we very rarely actually see the seven together and also fighting. Yeah. Like It rarely happens where it's
2: more than one. There's one like Homelander – scene and you're like oh that's where a lot of the money went yeah <laughs> or there's a playing sequence where you're that like, too, yeah. yeah or, or yeah. to
1: all of the music that pops oh up my god, yes.
2: and it's so perfectly timed like every time one of those songs comes on, I'm like that's that's a great <laughs> that's you a know, great pop. that
1: was good yeah but no you no know, towards
0: the end they were definitely just scenes and rooms of various uh sets they already owned <laughs> 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 we gonna do this in his house so, like yeah. okay i'm but, very like pumped. yeah you know they're gonna get more money for this for season two for sure all so right. Yeah, man, uh, it's hard to talk. Uh, maybe we'll talk about kind of full spoilers. And I would little love bit. to do
2: like a full because yeah. there's enough here to yeah. do that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So
0: we'll do a full spoilers discussion breakdown once more people have had a chance to see it because a lot of people are still getting up on it. I mean, I've told like five friends to watch it and they've been grateful. So tell your friends, go watch the boys because this this is probably my favorite streaming new show of the year so far. But don't um, don't
1: tell your parents. They will hate it. Now, I am. Uh, yeah.
2: I'm right there with you. I think. And it yeah, might be. I mean,
0: I think this was better than Umbrella Academy, which I also really enjoyed. Agreed. That's true. Yeah. So the boys. All right. Last but not least, we are going to talk about Marvel's Powers of Ten debut, and we're going to break this down in about a five or six minute review. <laughs> yeah. um, by the time you hear this, Marvels will have released Powers of Ten issue one, the follow up to last week's House of X. This is all under Jonathan Hickman's. A uh, blanket of rebooting the X-Men and creating uh, an X-Men mythos we have never seen or imagined. And in House of X, things got a little weird. We did a full breakdown about, you know, all the implications of that book and what it's setting up um, from, like, Krakoa to this – the I forget what the – the Orchids or whatever the hell – The, the Orchids, yeah. The Orcus, this organization of human things that are building mm-hmm. some big mutant doomsday weapon in space – you know the, the speech of Xavier gave that changed the world. That we don't know about. Like what is happening and like what's going on. And we thought Powers of Ten might be kind of revealing things, the details that make House of X make more sense. Well, it does that, mm-hmm. just not at all in the way that we <laughs> expected.
2: It. Yes, it does. Right
0: from the first page, it sets up why this book is called Powers of Ten, mm-hmm. which is it's looking at four different time periods, each an exponent of ten, right? Yeah. So like it's the X, it starts with the X-Men, in, with a scene with Charles Xavier and Moira and McTaggart in the 1960s. Then it's also covering things that happen uh, 10 years later, which is Marvel's math equivalent of how long the X-Men have been going yeah. through things. Uh, yeah, it's been since the 1960s, but in comics, comic time, it's only 10 yeah. years. <laughs> then we get 100 years in the future in this post-apocalyptic world overrun by a war where men, uh, where humans have joined with like, machines like Sentinels and are waging a war against mutants. And then we get 1,000 years in the future after all of this stuff that is covered in House of X and introduced and all this stuff, by the way, in both the 100 years and 1,000 years future, everything we've learned about in House of X is over. Yeah, like it, I mean, they straight up in some charts Hickman tells you like all this stuff it's you done. just said yeah. is done, and, and, and it didn't how end it ended. well. Yeah, point. and it didn't end well. Like we get an entire history of Mister Sinister has been doing in right? like the hundred years future. I love that whole and bit, all this by the stuff way. and like all these crazy just little side stories written out in just in just regular book style text yeah. on like in between pages of art, and so like yeah, so basically, oh man, I can't even wrap my head around saying all this. So basically what we see is now a like a four-part story. Um House of X is in the ten years later era, but there's some major I mean, Marvel said this is the most important scene in, in X-Men history, whatever's happening in this sixties world with Xavier mm-hmm. and Moira McTaggart, because she knows him, but he doesn't know her. Exactly. And we don't know why that is. Like how is sixties more is this really the sixties? There's other theories that this is Phantom X's world, which is this kind of uh, dome where time moves incredibly fast. It's, it's artificial evolution so they can make things evolve. And so, like, is this this in some way? We don't know. But so House of X is the, is the modern day. The 100 years future thing was my most interesting point and what I want to see spun out of this storyline. Because the, like, the man-machine war against mutants yeah. is really interesting. Yeah, so I mean,
2: it's got such echoes of like Days of Future Days past. of Future yeah.
0: Past and all this stuff. And there's this Nimrod character who's running things, who's unlike any other Nimrod we've all seen because he's very personable, yeah, and very almost human-like in the way he talks. He feels bad about what he's doing, but, but he murders people I, anyway. See, I you can't
1: you can't tell sarcasm through text. I, find this through texting a lot but i couldn't tell if he was being sincere with the i am so sorry about what we are doing to you bad ideas should die or if he's if he's saying it in a mocking way where he's like i "I feel so bad for how this is about no i didn't think he
0: arch i think he was a robot and he was doing something for logical reasons um for scientific logical reasons he was eliminating like bad genes or, or creating this mutant kind of database yeah And it's like Brainiac. Like, Brainiac is cold and calculating, but he's not necessarily, like... I mean, he is evil, but he's not, like, arch in, like, a lot of tellings. He's just a cold, unflinching machine. Mm. And I feel like this Nimrod is almost like Data in Star Trek. He is a machine, but he almost has, like, a human personality... And he is genuinely apologizing, which is creepier to me. Yeah, I I read
1: it as sincere. There's also a panel where he's like looking weirdly like excited that he's about to put. Well, because it's his design, right? Yeah, so he's
2: very, it's, yeah, it's weird. Like, I, but I loved it for how different it is compared to other. Nimrod. And there's
0: other, yeah, there's a whole new Nimrod future, version of this Nimrod future where they're hunting mutants and creating, like, the bishop-type things, like hounds or whatever they're creating. Yeah. And, like, doing all that. And they rebelled. And, like, there's this whole The thing. black domes. Yeah. 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 And I want to see more of that world spun off. Like, I want to read more about that future. Um, I'm, I'm still trying to wrap my head about this blue child in the thousand-year future. Yeah. Um, But the first panel shows all of these things being, and they're all of the panels up into Nimrod and the blue people on the blue kid are all of Xavier, Mm -hmm. which has raised some serious questions. Like, are these all iterations of Xavier in some way? Like is Krakoa's Xavier, some kind of, you know, resurrected Xavier? Is this Nimrod in Xavier? Because it's Nimrod you see in the first panel. Yeah. And is this blue kid in the thousand year future, some kind of relation to Xavier or or reincarnation of Xavier? And it would explain Nimrod's personality, but that was more interesting to me. Like, what if somebody did program Nimrod with Xavier's yeah. like, brainwaves? That's a very interesting character. Of course, we don't have any of these answers yet.
2: No. no. And there's more questions than answers.
0: Yeah. yeah. Oh, In the Nimrod thing is the extension of Orcus, because mm-hmm. Orcus is building a huge master mold in space in House of X-1, and we know how that goes. It goes very badly. For yeah. Because <laughs> um, Hickman tells us. Like, it starts this man-machine war that uh, gets really out of hand and like gets defeated, but like, yeah. Krakoa Empire crumbles. Like, there's all Well, and this that too, stuff. right? The
2: Sinister stuff when they tell you in that paragraph of, like... So, yeah, Sinister essentially programmed a flaw into, like, all his creations. And, yeah, and then he was... <laughs> and then he was executed. <laughs> he was held up by the... the like, all those little things in just a paragraph because they're so important to yeah. the overall story. Those are, those are like, yeah.
0: entire comic arcs. Yeah. Like, in one paragraph. Here you go. Story. Here's a giant thing. Yeah. And so, like, yeah, I mean... What Powers of Ten essentially does is it doesn't so much explain House of X as it does pull back even further and say, no, here's really the scope of the story I'm telling. And this thing you read in House of X, that's just like a blip in this. And if you thought that was like a mind screw you're probably feeling pretty mind-screwed right about now.
2: And it did and, make me want to go back yeah, exactly. and read House of X 1 just to fill in some of those, okay, well, maybe like at the beginning scene where they're coming out of the pods, like maybe I have a better understanding of like what that is now. And, like every Xavier scene, right, because there's a whole exchange between Mystique and Magneto mm-hmm. and Xavier, and he like takes the drive and they're like working together. Like There's a whole thing there. It's like, okay, I want to go back to the other issue and see if, I can get any kind of context, and I mean, and plus, I just love all the DNA stuff, like the splicing together of those like new that new group of mutants where yeah, they're there's a putting they together.
0: introduce a character who's quickly becoming, oh my God, I think uh, they gonna become an instant fan favorite, which She's is also- rasputin God, God, yeah, <laughs> yeah, rasputin, like who basically has like, yeah, they combine mutants who have a combination of powers uh based on genetics, and so she has like colossus power she has like magic sword i think she i can't remember if she can like teleport i can't she's rem- got
2: kitty pride's phase yeah uh and then yeah she has uh x23's healing yeah and then there's one more and i can't remember what the other one
0: is. and colossus is techno organic yeah. steel and like magic sword and like, then you
2: have the pacifist which is uh, ironically Cardinal. the devil yeah. right yeah the cardinals and then you have which is like nightcrawler mixed with i mean there's a there's is a ton like
0: a zazel or something like yeah. i don't know what it is but like yeah but these are sinister's creations, and, like, yeah, uh, Rasputin becomes, like, an instant fan favorite in this issue for how badass she is. And this cool design, kind of like, too, yeah, yeah. Awesome design, and, like, yeah, already breaking out. So, and I we mean, see- we're getting new X-Men characters, new worlds, all of this stuff. We're just gonna have to make sense of it.
1: And we see Wolverine and a very old looking right. Magneto and yeah. Wolfie stuff. I mean that's that really load. short. The most, yeah. <laughs>
0: normal, the most normal comic book panel in this whole thing is like somehow the most confusing. It's just a panel of Mystique coming back and like arriving and meeting or somebody, I forget who how it goes, I have to reread this, but like there we get a shot of all these X-Men standing together and it's Magneto, it's old Wolverine, like
2: oh, it's Rasputin coming back
1: from the dead. Yeah, mission, Rasputin, they that's lost right. People. Yeah, because yeah. they
0: lost people. Who was who
1: the plant guy and the fire? There's Groot. Guy. That was Groot. Yeah, I'm pretty sure one of those guys is. I mean, Groot. it looked a lot like Groot. I don't. I was like some yeah. weird
0: Black Tom thing. Like I, old, think it has old to be man Groot. Groot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like old man Groot and, and Green Magneto and Zorn, and Zorn with a flaming head and like a weird kind of thing that looks like Exodus mixed with Zorn. Yeah. Like, kind of floating there and we have no idea what that is yet
2: and, and it's like, just crazy too because yeah that reminds me of, like all the the various like population stuff of how there's only eight remaining like of Krakoa, new yeah. names mm-hmm. on Krakoa in that just Which that is little an pocket asteroid yeah yeah
1: that has to asteroid k that has to lead to something
0: I didn't even notice how something explain to me I was like I thought asteroid k because of like, the history of asteroid m would have been like somebody's name like and so I was trying to think who has a K that would be having an asteroid. And well, I figured
2: like, K stood for Krakoa. Yeah, and then yeah. somebody's like, "No, dummy,
0: it's Krakoa." Makes a lot more sense because it's I
2: imagine yeah. The, yeah, last the last part, last right? Part of that But then story, there's yeah. like two other colonies in the that Shi'ar have Empire. The, yeah, like yeah. Oh yeah, so much. There's so like <laughs> when
0: the techno organic or the techno human war with the mutants starts. Like yeah, mutants eventually settle other places. There's two colonies in the Shi'ar Empire: one on the edge of Shi'ar space, one in the empire where mutants are repurposed to be Imperial Guardsmen, um, and then eight people living on Krakoa's asteroid.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And that's the whole, like, mutant And population. there's, I just love, too, that in one of those random paragraphs explaining all this, there's that little aside of, like, and the mutants hope that, you know, the Shi'ar take over them because they would like to become part of the garden. it's, like, little stuff like that, and you're, like, that's either just a really, just for no other reason nod, just to, like, oh, that's just a cool little thing. Or that's going to mean something in, like, five issues. I'm going to have to go back and, where did I read Or, like, Ray like,
0: Hickman's, like, setting up this new universe in, like, two years. Who knows? Yeah. Like, where this is all going and how much of this is all going to come back up later. Because, I mean, he's establishing things that I could see other creators having to revisit for years to come.
2: It's a lot. It's, it's a lot. Like, this book is dense. Uh, but... It is compelling as yeah. well. Like I'm, like, I,
0: I yeah. very much enjoyed Powers of Ten more than I did House of X. Yeah. one. and I'm, but it did make me, ironically, it did make me now more curious to see
2: House of X two. Like I liked House of X as a story more, like as a just a of overall like, oh, I'm amped for this. But Powers of Ten looks like it's really gonna be the one that has like all the. The really interesting meat stuff. Like yeah. the, the best story is probably gonna be House because it deals with group of characters.
0: Well, I don't know. Because that was the thing I said, the actual House had a lot more cold, was like a lot more cold and sterile to me. Really? Like it was just kind of informational and like very just here's how things are, kind of almost like long exposition. Where this one actually had a lot of information, but it was interspliced with scenes that were very well done. Hmm, like Powers of Ten had interesting scenes in it Mystique going, the yeah. Rasputin battle. Like all of that, you know, Nimrod stuff, like the scenes with Nimrod mm-hmm. and, and testing her Rasputin's teammate and breaking her down and doing all that. Like all of those scenes were a lot more alive and entertaining and comic booky in a way than I thought yeah. House of X was. Mm, interesting. And so I really enjoyed this and I enjoyed the art more.
2: So,
1: yeah, boy, uh, Silva.
2: I yeah. think that's Silva, Silva knocked it out, man. So,
1: good art team. Yeah, As a guy that, Has not read X Men comics consistently in a long time. This thing is dense as hell, but actually pretty (laughs) compelling.
0: All right, so we'll be back, and I'm sure we'll be talking much more of this as House of X and then Powers of Ten comes out. So we'll be back to do this. Uh, Stay tuned. (coughs) Oh man, I loosened it at the end there. All right, that'll do it for this episode of Comic Book Nation. We're gonna get out of here, but before we do, if you want to get into the show because you just joined recently with all of our specials or some subject we've done, you can find new episodes every Wednesday and Friday on comicbook.com, where you can subscribe to our RSS feed, where you can get regular updates on new episodes when they're released. Or you can subscribe on your favorite listening platform. We are on i uh, iTunes, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, Google Playlists, Spotify, Stitcher. Or you can tell any Amazon Alexa device. Play Comic Book Nation podcast and it will fire up for you. If you want to respond or join the discussion about anything we've talked about here, you can find us on social media at the hashtag Comic Book Nation.
1: Or you can find me at Kofi Outlaw. You can find me at Matt Aguilar CB. At Connor Casey underscore CB.
0: And if you like the show and want to leave us a brilliant five-star review on iTunes, every so often we will be reading reviews on the show. We'll probably get to some this week. And if we read yours on the air and you contact us, we will send you some Comic Book Nation swag, like our awesome shirts, which I am wearing here if you're watching on video. And we can get one of these out to you. All those shirts. That'll do it for us. We'll be back in the next episode. You guys take it easy out there. This is Comic Book Nation. We're out. Deuces.